Today, I'm just starting a seven-week series through the book of Ephesians. I'm going to try to pull out one main thought from each chapter, and then what I plan to do on the seventh week is to go through the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, I think, maybe 3. We'll get to that. And so from chapter 1, if you're in Ephesians 1, if you're not, please open that up, and we're going to just walk through this together. Three parts to this message today. So when I was in high school, I was not the athlete. I know, surprised, right? No, I just wasn't. I mean, I was cut from the seventh grade C basketball team. I was bad. I, I never grew up playing ball. I didn't know how to play. I didn't even like watching it on TV. And so, I mean, I bounced the ball once and it was gone. I didn't know where it went. So I was, not a, I was not a very coordinated person, not very athletic. And so gym class, or what they call PE, phys ed, whatever you call it, was not my favorite class. Didn't like it. I mean, it was just intimidating. All these other guys in the locker room, and they're sweaty. And, and anyway, I had the quintessential phys ed teacher, the ex-Marine, football, polyester, coat, shorts, yell-in-your-face gym teacher. Mr. Abby, and he would get, it was boys only PE class, and he would get us out there, and he'd do all kinds of drills and calisthenics and stuff, and sometimes he would just either get busy or get lazy, I'm not sure which, and he'd be like, all right, boys, you get out there with the basketball, and you just play. I'm going back here and read the paper. You know, I mean, he would just do that. And uh, so he would set us up. He'd make sure that, you know, he appointed the captains, and We'd pick teams, and then he'd go off and do whatever, and we'd just play ball. I never got picked to be a captain, ever, until one day. He lined us all up on the baseline, and he picked the first captain, who was always one of the basketball players, and then he looks at me, and he goes, Hey, Freck, you're the other captain. I'm like, what? Are you serious? So I didn't know what to do, so I just got out there with the other captain and uh, the other guy picked first. And of course, who do they pick? They picked the best ball player there is. And I thought, well, I'll just play, I'll just do like he did. I'll pick the second starter on the, on the varsity team. What I didn't anticipate was his reaction. Oh, man, I've got to be on Freck's team. I mean, I heard him say that. He did not want to be on my team. I didn't blame him. But, you know, stiff upper lip got to keep the appearances so other captain made his second pick I tried again I tried to get one of the starter basketball players on my team same reaction they're back both here behind me just complaining just griping that they got to be on my team and it just made me mad I didn't get mad very much as a kid but I got mad I got very upset I'm like I'm not doing this I am not I am not doing this so the other guy made his third pick and I decided I'm going to go from the bottom up. I was one of those kids, always picked last in every kickball team or whatever, all through school. I just knew this was my place. This was my station in life. But I wasn't the last guy. I wasn't the last guy. I was probably second or third to the last. The last guy in our, in our grade was a guy named Jeff. And we called him Beanpole. We called, well, we called him Bean. He was a beanpole. I'm 6'5", 110 pounds, soaking wet. And this guy just, I mean, he just did this when he walked because he had no, he was so lanky. And so, and talk about a guy that 
always was picked last. So I just said, hey, Bean. He didn't even hear me. He wasn't even paying attention. He's looking at the floor going, I just, I'll just go where I, you know, who was picking last. He didn't even hear. I yelled at him again. Hey, Bean, get over here. He looked up at me like, me? I'm like, yes, you, get over here. You're on my team. His face lit up. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm number three. I'm number three. And he's like looking at all these other guys who were still in line going, what? You picked him. And that, that did something in me. That made my heart three sizes that day. You know, and so it just made me want to go in your face, starter varsity basketball team. I'm picking up all the guys from the bottom up with the two starters who didn't want to be on my team. So the other captain's like, fine, you could do what your thing, man. So I pick all the rejects. I pick all the losers. I pick all the guys who can't put one foot in front of the other. And he picks all the best. He picks all the good ones. I would love to tell you that it was a Cinderella story <laughs> of losers coming back to win against all odds. And we made a movie out of it. But it turns out, turns out the two starter players that I had actually assisted the other team whenever they could. They didn't want to be chosen. They didn't want chosen. If there's any explanation for hell that you could give for anybody, they didn't want chosen. They resisted the choosing. And they worked for the enemy. And so we got stomped pretty hard that day, but we had fun. We were a team. We weren't just a bunch of leftovers or flunkies or rejects trying to keep up. We, we were just the chosen ones that day. Because I wanted them, not because of any popularity or any ability on their part, it just means they're chosen. They were wanted. And we had fun. This is our place. This is who we are. And Paul begins this chapter with praises in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Why? Verse 4, because he chose us. He chose us in him. When? Before the earth was created. Before anything was ever spoken into existence, he knew your name. Before you were a glint in your mother's eye, he chose you to be in him, holy, set apart, special purpose, blameless, forgiven. He chose you, and then he predestined you. Now, that's a word with a lot of theological baggage and deep weeds. We're not going to get into what he's basically saying is, I chose you, I put you in this spot, I adopted you, I brought you in. You have a choice, but this is your place. This is what I've offered to you. What I want to focus in on here is the mood, the motivation that God has. In love, it says, he predestined us to be adopted. Into what? Into relationship. Into first family. Into all the rights and privileges as a child of his. And did he do so because he had to, because it was a last resort, because 
I guess. No, it was with his pleasure and will. He delighted in the choosing. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. And it's not just the choosing. It's not just the adoption. He worked out something for us. In verse 7, in him we have redemption. That's not a word we use very much outside of church. We are redeemed. We're bought back. We're rescued. A high price was paid because we were lost without any hope. And he did the work that it took lovingly, delightfully, willingly to rescue us. How? Through his blood. All that work on the cross, the empty tomb. And then we have forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace, he lavished on us. Ever been lavished on? Ever had somebody just bless you beyond? I mean, you, you, you bless your socks off and you got to get new socks because your socks are gone and you don't know what to do, but you just like it's blowing your mind. I'm so overwhelmed with blessing right now. He lavished this on us. But it wasn't foolish and it wasn't just spontaneous. It was with wisdom and understanding that he did this. It was all according to plan. We have redemption, we have forgiveness, we have these riches. And verse 9 says, He made known to us the mystery of His will. Again, according to His good pleasure, He's having, God is just up there having a ball. He's just loving this. It is just to His pleasure and will, He made known to us the mystery. We don't have to figure out what God is doing. He told us. In Christ. And then verse 11, he summarizes again. He said in verse 4, he chose us. In verse 11, he chose us. We were chosen. Having been adopted, having been predestined according to the plan, he works everything out to his purpose, conformity to his will. He's in charge. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. It's all about Him. It's always all about Him. So verse 13 summarizes this whole thing. That when you believed and when you trusted in this good news, you were guaranteed, you were sealed with this promise, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said before He left, I will be with you always. And he fulfills that promise by giving us this indwelling presence, God himself taking up residence in your body and your mind until all creation is redeemed and all things made new and everything is opened up for us to see. He will be with us in his Holy Spirit. That's a lot to take in. It's completely good news. I hope you're getting this. This is good news. There's a lot here. So let me... Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Before the world was created, God knew you. He thought of you. He chose you. He set it up ahead of time that you'd be given the rights and privileges of being in his family. Why? Because he wanted to. It made him happy 
to do so. And he did the work to make it happen. A great sacrificial, difficult work. Securing your freedom from sin and death. Why? How? By his blood and shed on the cross. And if that wasn't enough, he made good on his promise to be with us always and gave us this Holy Spirit himself to be with us. And then notice the order. Notice the order this came in. Chosen. Then upon accepting the choice, you're adopted into the family. Then you're forgiven. God didn't choose us because we're clean or sinless or good. In fact, quite the opposite. God chose us and delighted in us despite our darkness and filth and rebellion. Now, all that said, you try to convince me that somehow you're the exception to the rule and that God could never love you or forgive you or otherwise accept you into his family. You look at this and you try to convince me that you are somehow above or below this reality. You could try to convince me, but I'm pretty sure you, if you believed anything about this, you, you'd believe that this applies to you as well as everybody else in the room. Whether you've accepted that or not is your choice right now. It's your option. And I would pray that you would if you haven't. But with God, you need to understand, it's not you have to believe and then behave before you belong. That's not how God operates. Some people think that you, you have to get straightened up before he'll accept you. Some people think you have to get your life a little bit more in order before you can come back to church. Some people believe you have to stand at the sink and wash yourself all over before you get in the shower. That's nonsense. That's a waste of time and water. That's what that is. Don't do that. With God, it is you already belong. He's already chosen you. You just have to say yes. He already brought you in with all the delight of a father to say, you're my child. And you just have to say, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't, I, but I accept it. And by faith, we respond in love. We obey and trust. God asks for faith on our part. He asks for repentance on our part to turn toward him. He does the work of salvation, but we need to be the ones to say yes and to walk alongside being made new, a changed life, allowing the Spirit to work. Now, now that we have your identity in Christ, the church is where some of this plays out. To some degree, helping others find that truth is everyone's job. Jesus said to go out into all the world and make disciples. And that isn't just for the few. This is for all disciples to make disciples. And that might just start with a hello and a handshake. So let me go to part two of this message. And it, I've not done infomercials in sermons before, but this is going to be one. Okay, so let me just start by saying, we're, we've been working as a staff to brainstorm and, and, and I've been talking with the elders about expanding a ministry that you call it hospitality, you can call it first impressions, you can call it front door, whatever you want to call it. What we need to start organizing is a little more upfront presence with people coming in the door 
people in the rooms, people checking kids into a children's ministry environment. We need to be intentional about stationing ourselves, volunteering our time to receive people because we expect guests. We really want people to come here on a Sunday morning. And when we do, we need to be ready for them personally. So let me tell you a story. It's a completely made-up story. It's not autobiographical. And like the movies say, there's no person or place that is you know, reality here. Um, I just made this up in my head. Is every church guest's nightmare. <laughs> so I'm not picking on anybody here. Just disclaimer. So mom and dad decide to visit ABC Church. They found that church's website, which is what they do first. And they got the location, the worship times, and they decided to try it. They haven't been in church regularly since they were married. The kids are getting a little older. They feel it's important to get their children some religious instruction, and they have mostly fond memories of attending church when they were younger. When they pulled up to the parking lot, it wasn't exactly clear where they should park, but they figured it out. And they got their three-year-old son, their five-year-old daughter out of the car and started walking toward what they thought was an entrance but ended up being a side door that was locked. Looking around, they saw people actually going around what was actually the front of the building. A couple members stopped to look at them struggling with the door but kept walking. (laughs) Once they made their way to the main entrance, they were already a little embarrassed. A friendly person was at the door, opened it for them, greeted them, They were handed a bulletin, shook hands with the greeter, and made their way into the building. Once inside, they froze. Deer in the headlights. Never been here before. People were milling around, carrying cups of coffee. They had no idea where to go. And there was a hallway going somewhere, some double doors to what looked like an auditorium, but no sign of a bathroom, which the little boy needed desperately. They must have looked a little lost because... One lady took notice of them as she was hurrying past. She greeted them, shook their hands, and asked if they were new. They said she hadn't seen them before. And with a bit of relief, the dad admitted to it being their first Sunday. But before he could say anything or ask any questions, she smiled and expressed her appreciation for them coming, and she hurried off. So they start to hear music in the auditorium, and the dad went down the hallway to find the bathroom for the boy, And after several smiles and nods from people walking in the other direction toward the worship um, service, he found the restrooms. So he and the uh, the boy eventually made it back to the wife and the daughter, and not feeling like trying to find a children's ministry at this point, and not seeing anybody else left in the foyer, they opened the doors to the sanctuary. They walked in the room and did a quick survey of their options. The piano player was finishing up, and the preacher started walking toward the stage, Most of the seats in the back four rows were taken. Not picking on anybody here. And most of the seats beyond that were couples and singles or families taking up aisle seats for several rows. This is just human nature. And they ended up going around the back row to the side trying to find space for four people, but they felt they were being stared at because they were late. And eventually they had to work their way past a couple sitting at the end of the row, feeling badly the lady had to move all of her stuff so they could find seats in the middle of the row. By the time they sat down and exhaled, the preacher said it was time to stand, smile, and greet one another, which they did not want to do. But they stood, naturally. They didn't want to extend themselves any more than they had, 
They kind of were awkwardly hoping that someone would take notice, but really wanting to crawl under their chairs. And a few people extended a hand. One person even said their name, but didn't ask theirs. The music started. The singing began. The man and woman looked at each other rather tired. And before the preacher had ever started preaching, before the band ever started playing, before anything, any events that were going on were announced or before any, any opportunities for ministry or whatever happened, they looked at each other and kind of thought, this may not be the place for us. Now, if this has ever been your experience, whether somewhere else or here, first let me say, I'm sorry. This was never supposed to be this way. If you've had this experience, or if, you've, if you would like this kind of thing never to happen at this church again, and believe me, it's just human nature. People fall through cracks. We just assume that they're going to be taken care of by somebody else. Oh, that's the staff's job, or whatever. The elder will take care of it. If, if, if you've ever... If you ever don't want this to happen, you might be the person for this team. You don't have to be an extrovert. I'm not. And it's just, it's out of love and the need for connection that people want to be a part of this particular team. And this will be more obvious what the, what the roles and responsibilities will be and how often you will do this. Obviously, the more people we have, the more we can spread out, the less often that you'll have to do it. But we, uh, as a staff, we're looking at at different doors to put people at. We're looking at checking children into children's ministry environments and having people receive. We're looking at people having being at the Welcome Center right out here. It's a nice piece of furniture that we just moved before we had a plan. My fault. And we just need people at all those spots so that when a family of five comes in and they have questions about where's the bathroom, where's the nursery, where's the children's ministry environment, that somebody can't actually say, well, you follow me and I'll show you where it's at. And I'll introduce you to this person, and I'll hand you off to this, and I'll hand you this part, and we'll get you a gift. And here's this card. We'd love to, for you to fill this out so that we can follow up with you later, answer any questions you have. We're not out to market Jesus. We're here to love people. And the way you love them is to recognize who they are, to remember their names as much as you can, because keep, I keep asking. So I think I know you, but uh, you know this is getting embarrassing. Six months in, I still don't know everybody's name. But that's part of it, and people get it. This is truly is. It's not just for the team. This truly is what, we've, what we're building on something that's already here. We're, we're putting people in place that are already doing what you're doing, but really is it, each part plays a part. It really is this environment, this culture, where you're like, you can't get me out of this seat to go talk to nobody, man. You're not doing, you're not. Somebody welcomed you. And perhaps they didn't do it well, and perhaps you felt like you had to make your own way before you landed here. But my burden, my responsibility, if the only welcome a person receives is from the person at the door and from this sign right here, they're not likely to feel very welcomed. If the only connection they have is a handshake and a smile during the service, if they don't get connected to a small group or a Sunday school class, if you don't get them invited to lunch or to coffee or later on conversation, if they don't feel needed in a ministry or a service opportunity, likely in a few months, doesn't matter how, how they love the, the environment or if they don't make connections, they'll likely drift. Because the church is a body. 
And the best way this kind of culture is created and, and, and flourishes is by prayer. Part three. And we're back to our text. I'm just going to walk through very quickly the last part of this chapter. And it's a prayer. Paul's praying for the believers. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I forgot to mention, in the next couple Sundays, be looking for uh, um, reminders and texts and Facebooks and stuff. What we're going to try to do is to have an informational meeting after second service for the next two weeks. So that if you're interested in this, that you can hang around and we can talk about it and we can give you more information and responsibilities and what you might be doing. So stick around after church one of the next two weeks or both to find out what's happening. Okay. He says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Have you ever prayed for somebody and the first things out of your mouth is, God, make them different. (laughs) Figure out what they need to change and do it because they're, you know, being jerks. No, the first thing you need to do is give thanks for them. The first thing you need to do is, is find ways that you are thankful for this person. And then he just goes on and says, I, I keep asking, there's persistence here, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, revealing, so that why? You may know him better. That's the goal for everybody, to know Christ better. And then he says, I pray also the eyes of your heart. And that's an interesting phrase. The eyes, I mean, the word literally is eyes, but it's the eyes of understanding. It's the eyes of your mind, the eyes of your thought processes, the eyes of all of your reasoning and emotion. Those eyes be open. In order, why? Then he gives a few reasons here. Why does he pray this? So that you can know the hope to which he's called you. There's a living hope that each believer has. And that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Check that out. What what does God not already have ownership of in the entire universe? I mean, he made everything, but what is the only thing that God doesn't already own? People, people who haven't given themselves to him. That's his inheritance. We are his inheritance. And he doesn't, notice, he doesn't call us the leftovers. He doesn't call us the mediocre flunkies. He calls us glorious, the riches of his glorious inheritance. You need a little boost to who you think you are? He calls you glorious inheritance. He can't wait to receive you into his reward. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. And he goes on to talk about this power. This power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That power is at work in you and me. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And when Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, Paul echoes it here and says in verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head 
over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. So Paul begins by praying for people. He prays that they would be given hope and power and wisdom. But do you notice how much of this prayer is completely focused on the person and the power and the authority of Christ? There is something to be said about pondering and dwelling on the greatness of Jesus in the midst of your prayers for someone else. Because where do you think the power comes from that that person needs? Where do you think the peace comes from that that person desperately wants? Where do you think the change is going to come from that that person needs to walk in? It's from Christ alone. And dwelling on the person of Jesus as you pray for someone else is completely biblical and okay. A lot of times we say, we're going to lift this person up in prayer. And it's a great word picture. It's a great symbolism because, you know, we think of God as being up there. Or, I mean, he's with us, but he's up there. Heaven is up there. And so we lift a person up in prayer to God. And I, I get this picture of, in my mind's eye, having this person in my thoughts, this, this a person in my hand. And I lift them up like a little kid does when they have a, a toy that is broken. They lift it up to their mom or their dad and they lift it up to them and they say, I, I can't, I can't. It's, it's fi it, fix it or, or help me. It's, it's a posture of, of submission and trust and, and asking. And so I'm asking you and me to pray that God would reveal to you or put somebody on your heart to pray for. Pray for one. Each one, pray for one. And you take that person and in your mind's eye, you put them in your hands and you lift them up to God. And you say, here, here. I can't. I don't know what to do with this person. Here, here. I can't do, help me with this person. Help them. Here. Here you, you need to take them. Because I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I trust you to do this. Here. You keep that posture. What that does is it humbles your heart and it says, it's not up to me to save this person. It's not up to me to change this person. Here. You do it. You do it. It's up to you. Your wisdom your strength, your power, your authority, your dominion, your plan. And what are we praying for? We're praying for the lost to be saved, for the saved to be discipled, and for the disciples to be deployed. If there's any vision to this at all, it's these three things. We want God to transform lives from one to the next from one to the next. There's a lot of saved among us that aren't discipled. There's a lot of people trusting that they have their sins forgiven but aren't walking with Jesus. They don't have somebody walking with them. So we need the saved to be discipled and we need these disciples to be disciple-making disciple-makers. And if you would start with one and pray for that person every day, 
for a year. Whether it's a family member, a spouse, a child, a friend, a co-worker, someone you have a relationship with that either is lost that needs saved, saved that needs discipled, or discipled that needs deployed, you can pray that direction. And that person then, after a while, will figure out. And you're allowed to tell them. And then what happens when they start praying for somebody the next year? There's a multiplication that happens. There's exponential growth in the body because we know who we are. We treat others the way we want to be treated in the church. And we pray. So let's do that. Father, there's some of us here that have already on our minds this person that we need to pray for. Maybe we've been praying for them for years. And it's, uh, it's just a matter of, of recommitting to doing so. Committing to doing a more trusting prayer um, instead of sanctified worry or panicked prayer. So help us to pray faithfully and consistently and with, um, with the strength that you provide. <clears throat> Help us to be a church um, that continues to grow in the grace of giving attention to people that need it, um, people that aren't like us, people that perhaps um, were rejected somewhere else or maybe just coming home. And uh, give us a burden to pray. This new year starts. As we know who we are, we can pray for those others to know who they are as well in you. We give this to you because you have to do this. You, you have to manufacture this in our hearts and lead us into this way. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for choosing us. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>